The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the B-Side for episode 1652 of our national conversation about conversations about race, your 2017 survival guide. I'm Anna Holmes, here with some of my best friends or black author, Tanner Colby. Hey, Tanner. Hello, Anna. And joining us, also here is Gene Denby, who hosts two podcasts, Post Bougie and NPR's Code Switch. Welcome, Gene. Hey, thanks for having me, Anna. Hey, what's up, Tanner? How's it going? On our last episode, we discussed, which I wasn't, and I wasn't here for, so yes. I'm interested to hear this. Um, we discussed, or they discussed, the various ways you might want to prepare for 2017, from books to podcasts to self-defense courses. <laughs> so here's our <laughs> here's our producer, AC Valdez, with some of what you all had to say about that. Hey, Hey, AC. how's it going? I'm disappointed nobody wrote in about the, uh, Baratunde recommended buying a fire extinguisher. I don't know if you caught that, mm-hmm. but yes. I thought that was very practical of him. Um, it was. On that note, we got some responses <laughs> to uh, what Tanner had to say about taking one for the team and listening to conservative podcasts. Charles on Twitter told us, I'm going to start taking one for the team too and listen to The Federalist and Ricochet. Then he tweeted at us about it. I did my duty, he says. Federalist was disconcerting because while politically opposite, we overlap culturally. One of the hosts was devastated by Prince and David Bowie's deaths. I watch many of the same shows, but he's wondering what this means and how they have that shared experience, but come to such different places politically. It's very disconcerting. About Ricochet, he had to say, Ricochet, on the other hand, was not disconcerting. A group of old white guys waxing nostalgic about yesteryear, about flexing American might and middle American values. So, Tanner, have you listened? You've listened to Ricochet. I don't know if you've listened to yeah, the Federalist. The, no, I've listened to both. And it is an interesting, like, I think sort of in our mind's eye, other than like the crazy bro rednecks at Trump rallies, like when you think the youngest conservative you think of is like Tucker Carlson, right? You just don't <laughs> like people our age who listen to Prince and Bowie, you're just like, well, naturally they're on our side, but apparently they're not. And it, it is interesting. It's been fascinating to me to, because I consume so much of the reaction to to trump through vox slate new york magazine code switch where it's been you know thoughtful nuanced terrified and then you go and listen to these shows and even among never trumpers because most of them are never trumpers who who host these you know because they're orthodox conservative and they're like yeah maybe not that bad you know is sort of like their take i'm still concerned you know you know and (laughs) i i'm listening to it primarily with an ear for race which doesn't exist the only time i've heard race mentioned so far and i've listened to like you know a month or two of back issues is race is um uh either something that democrats are using to divide people or be a place where we need to improve our outreach and that's it like that's literally it because to them the rest is just you know colorblind policy application of conservative principles will help everyone and then, then beyond that they don't think about it so even like obliquely um, like they don't even mention it in as it pertains to like immigration reform or or, or, or opposition to immigration reform not that i've heard like you know I'm, I'm actually formulating a thesis about this about the way we talk about race which is you know conservatives have this i don't see color i'm colorblind if you bring up race they've sort of used language and vocabulary to define race out of the equation in a lot of ways and that you know we so that they almost don't even have the vocabulary to talk about it. It's like asking someone to talk about like neurosurgery when like they don't know Latin or any of the terms for what the parts of the brain are. 
And again, I've only listened to, to, to a little bit of it, but that seems to be the general tenor of which they talk about race and the, the, the way that they talk about Trump is they're treating him like a normal presidential candidate who was a little crazy during the campaign. Mm-hmm. And maybe, who knows, maybe this because of what they imagine the policy implications of getting this Republican Congress and Republican White House to be, which I think is fantasy land, because as Trump showed with the ethics office, he doesn't give a fuck. Trump's going to be for Trump and everyone else can just go fuck themselves. So the way in which they talk about Trump is very, very disconcerting. Even the people who are opposed to him, there's a, a, a normalization and acceptance of him. And the way they talk about it. So I'm going to keep listening just because I think it's um, it's just fascinating to see when I read my Fox Slate, New York Magazine, uh, NPR lens, which to me is reality. And then <laughs> I, I go into this bizarro world where everything, it's almost like a photo negative. Where can I, it's like, can I ask a question on Charles's behalf, though? Because like, I want to know, sure. do any of you find it? disconcerting like he does that you all have the same cultural touchstones though no because in a different world i might have gone that way i was a good little young republican in the suburbs and growing up and we listened to rush limbaugh in the car on the way to and from school and but for a few teachers and people who you know pushed me or nudged me a different direction I could be a Tucker Carlson, you know, and I like Prince and David Bowie. I don't find that that strange. Age-wise, it's a little strange to me, just like when, to me, the idea of sexism was like, you know, older dudes. And then uh, I, to, it, to my, my my modern idea of marriage, all of my friends have pretty much modern marriages. Both spouses work. The kids do half the child care. We, that's, and to me, I was just sort of like, well, that's what we're doing now, right? That's the modern deal. And then I met my wife who used to work on wall street where it's all finance bros and trophy wives. And I'm like, really? Hmm. That's still the arrangement in most of America. She's like, yeah. I was like, Oh, Gene, Anna, what about, what about you all? What, what's your question? question I mean, I think what threw Charles off was the fact that like, there are so many shared cultural things and they still, they're still so politically far apart. I mean, one of the things that's so much, so fascinating about culture is that like so many, there's so many ways, even when people make their politics explicit in their cultural product, that we can still sort of like push ourselves away. We can just impose anything we want on it, right? I mean, not long ago, we had someone on a podcast talking about Tupac and basically posited that Tupac was a feminist, which is like a crazy thing to say, you know what I mean? For a dude who was, uh, uh, who was, you know, arrested for, uh, who was convicted, I think he did serve jail time for, uh, for rape, right? And I think this, this is thing that happens where like, um, people can either divorce themselves from the um, from the culture they consume, divorce their politics from, from the culture they consume, or they can just impose a narrative on uh, the culture they consume that sort of doesn't require them to sort of, to, to uncomplicate it for themselves. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that's weird at all. Mm, that right. you could have like, oh, you bang with Prince and David Bowie, these dudes who like play with gender all the time. Okay, whatever. You know what I mean, I'm sure plenty of people <laughs> can both hold that in their heads and uh, right. and still like be broadly anti-LGBTQ in their policy prescriptions for right. this. Right. Yeah. We love Muhammad Ali, but get the Muslims out of the country. Exactly. Ooh. Yeah. Well, in, in that case, he converted to, to Islam. So, like, I can see an Ali fan being like, well, he's he's not really, you know. Yeah, but I mean, you always make the, it, you know, growing up in the suburbs, you know, Prince 
Well, even NWA, gangster rap. Oh, yeah. God. When gangster rap hit the suburbs, okay. we were the baddest asses in the neighborhood okay. listening to NWA. But, but it's music, and you don't have to actually you don't have to actually interact with the person making the music directly. That's true. Just, right. Like, like, I'm sure if Prince was sitting next to some of his fans right. um, <laughs> across the table, or the, the, like, they might feel very right. differently, right. It, it, whether he was Prince or not. Um, it's a safe way to consume and engage <laughs> right. with blackness sure. without actually... It's like the Chris oh, sure. Rock bit about like you know his friends loving to sing along with Jay Z until it gets to certain parts of the lyrics and then they get real quiet when he's in the car. <laughs> right. um, they better get real quiet. AC, do you want to go on to the next? Yeah, let's take this email from Robert. Just a quick thought on Tanner's reference to rethinking liberalism and the questioning whether all the basic tenets of liberalism are correct. I have not read Reflections on the Revolutions of Europe, which is a book that Tanner recommended last time. But the idea that multiculturalism is not something that people have sought out and is therefore perhaps not inherently good is an interesting one. I think it's absolutely appropriate to take stock of one core, one's core beliefs now and again, reevaluate them, and see if we still believe in them. However, on this specific issue of multiculturalism, the argument that no one has sought this out as a greater good is dated. You could certainly make that argument 200 years ago, even 50 years ago. I live in the Mountain West, and the overall whiteness was a serious concern to me, having grown up in an insanely diverse part of California. I want my children to have the skill set to interact well with other races and cultures. In the changing way we as humans interact with each other, multiculturalism looks to me like a competitive advantage, and part of our cultural evolution as a country and a species. It also seems the most obvious way to de-escalate much of the military conflicts we in the world face. Resistance to it seems based on a worldview that is being forced into obsolescence, though it is sure not going down without a fight. So. Yeah, and that's his point of view, and that's his experience, and that's entirely valid. And I can't remember if I said it on the last episode or another one, but, you know, tribalism and provincialism is a safe place to be if you're fearful, if you don't have, you know, I, I think one critique of multiculturalism that I think may be true is that it is an elitist philosophy in the sense that in order to leave your tribe, your group that sustains you and protects you, whether it's Catholicism or your race or your religion or, or whatever, money and education are the things that allow you to go out and give you the curiosity, A, the curiosity to go out to engage with the other people, but B, the financial security and the 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 sort of self-awareness to live outside of a comfortable homogenous group. And so- well, How do you define multi- How are you guys defining multiculturalism? Because I wasn't, I wasn't. You know, I'm just trying to figure out what what you mean by it, and also why the term, at least by your definition, seems to require someone to leave something. Well, because I think it, it's it's like true why, that like I left an all white suburb to live in a more multiracial group that is in in its own way its own sort of tribe, and I think another thing that's true is that to have a sustainable multiracial democracy, the bonds of each tribal group have to get a little bit weaker in the sense that like I have a friend who's half Irish, half Italian. When his parents got married, their families didn't talk to, they're both Catholic too, by the way, but Irish and Italian, when their parents got married, they didn't talk to each other for 10 years because the Irish family married the, the Italian family and that's just, it was just like too far, you've betrayed your people. And today we'd be like, well, who cares? You're Irish and Italian. It's not that big a deal. But the bonds of 
that Italian immigrant community and the bonds that hold together that Irish Italian community have to become weaker over time to allow you to leave and intermingle the groups. And to have the bonds mm. of your tribe become weaker is a scary thing if you're someone who depends on the tribe. Well, they, they, like one they thing we saw to another tribe, right? They all became white, broadly white, right? I mean, well, that and that there's that too. But like one of the interesting things you saw is uh, during the time of you know the backlash to integration, that certainly the the white backlash to integration was massive, but a lot of people felt like, and this was in many ways the impetus for the black power movement, well, integration is going to destroy our tribe. We wanted equality. We wanted equal access. We wanted equal treatment before the law. We didn't want to lose our tribe. And so then you had this black nationalist backlash to integration and say, no, it's about consolidation of power in it's, our tribe it, and in our group. It's very interesting that you're, you're talking about the, the, the weakening of bonds has to occur because I don't know that I see it that way. I think I wouldn't use the word bonds. I would use the word reliance because I actually would argue that stronger bonds where people feel comfortable and secure in who they are and themselves actually frees them to go explore the world. It's something you see with like children. Children feel free to explore the world around them at a very, very young age. I'm talking about like toddlers or babies when they feel secure that their parents are there to take care of them and keep keep them from danger, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They're less likely to be clingy, right? If they feel secure about their place in the world. And I think that maybe that applies to you know, communities. So I don't know if it, I don't know if it requires a weakening of bonds. I also, um, you know, and Anna, I just want to jump in here too, because you're, you're biracial. I'm biracial. I feel like the tribalism thing actually has broken down because I don't know anything else other than belonging to, several tribes like that's that that's where i think tanner your theory gets a little Hmm. bit more complicated as we have more and more people who check more boxes Uh, who who like but a multiracial tribe is just a different tribe Uh, like there's a multi there's a white tribe there's a black tribe there's a and there's a multiracial tribe they're three different tribes no 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 no. i don't think there's no multiracial tribe i mean i there's no tribe that i have with like other multiracial people we're starting one (laughs) like i i I, we're gonna start one (laughs) What, what, what do you think people are calling the urban elite bubble a mostly white brooklyn hipster but we know some black people we've read ta-nehisi coates that is a cultural tribe it's very big it's very broad they're not all your friends that you hang out with but the people in the heartland think of themselves as the white evangelical tribe and they see us as a different tribe gene yeah i mean what do you think uh, i mean i think i, I would push back on the <laughs> idea that the, <laughs> i just think that um especially when we talk about like multiracial people becoming their own tribe i think like so all the research there is really complicated i think because people sort of identify different as different things over the course of their lives, right? I mean, people who I didn't have, say multiracial people. Okay, but that's what we were talking about. You can be a mixed race person or you can be a person That's what AC brought up and that was and you were seemed to be responding to his invoking I, I, I meant the biracial. tribe is multiracial, not the multiracial people who are in the tribe. Oh, I, I, oh, I see, oh, okay. I see what you're saying. I mean, I still think that like yeah. what, what happens with when you talk about Irish people marrying Italian people and, and people who are Protestant Catholic getting married and how that was like, you know, a source of deep scandal 60 years ago. Like all those people became white, right? They invested into the creation of, a, of another um, the tribe that came with considerable benefits, right? At the right. at the expense of other people's like sort of full Americanness. I don't know. I mean, sometimes I wonder if there's something... Because some of the stuff is not just so. A lot of the stuff is so deeply entrenched in our policy, right? I mean, the reason why we have this urban-rural divide is about race in so many ways, right? I mean, like this this is actually like a physical reality that we're separate from each other, and that our cultures are separated from each other. And so I don't, I don't know. Like I, I don't know. I, sometimes I wonder how viable America is as a long-term project. But you know, yeah, <laughs> I especially wonder that now. Yeah. 
Should we move on to the next one? Sure. So I'm going to play this voice memo. Hello, show about race. This is Grace, a white woman living in semi-rural New Hampshire. And I first want to thank you so much for your show and especially your recommendations. After Trump was elected, I decided to ignore all the pieces I was reading telling me I needed to get out of my coastal liberal elite bubble and understand Rust Belt rural voters who brought Trump to office and decided instead to try to understand better what it's like to live in this country with black or brown skin. Your recommendations have basically driven all my leisure time reading, viewing, listening over the last couple of months, and I have learned so much. Thank you. I also want to make a comment about your 2017 survival guide and the discussion about hillbilly elegy. Not only did I find the analysis of hillbilly culture to be shallow and overly preachy, I thought it was a really poorly written book. The prose far from sparkles. He's very lazy in his use of language in a lot of places. And as a poet and memoirist myself, I was really kind of pissed off that he got so much attention for what was essentially a pretty meh book in terms of how it was written. And I believe it was Raquel who said, I'd like to read a good memoir. Here's a recommendation. Townie by Andre Debuse III is an excellent and beautifully written book about what it's like to grow up as a poor white kid in a dying mill New England town. It's a book that does what it's supposed to. It tells an individual story that gives a universal picture of a time and place and people. Can't recommend it highly enough. Can't thank you enough for your outstanding show. Thank you so much. I love that voice memo. That was a great voice memo. <laughs> I just want to point out, too, um, we didn't get entirely negative feedback on Hillbilly Elegy. We did get an email from Susan saying it's about her tribe, and I'll just sum this up a little bit. Uh, Southern white trash have a deep love, a saving grace, a seed of potential that out of that mess might come someone who brings light and information and education back into their community. I hope you enjoy the book as much as I did. And she had sent that message to Raquel as well. Who's yeah. who's read it? I've read it. I agree. It was it was like, a, you know, just as a writing piece, it was, it was pretty standard fare. And I disagree with a lot of conclusions. And, and she's absolutely right about Townie is a fantastic book. I listened to that as a book on tape because my wife is from one of those mm. dying New England mill towns. Mm -hmm. And we listened to it and she was psychologically scarred by it. But yeah, there are better things to read if you want to know, look into the souls of white people in mm -hmm. America or whatever. Maybe we should have a whole clearly, episode on how clearly, to look into the souls of white people. Clearly, <laughs> she's given us an answer for our show this week that you're about to listen to, which is... Right. Tell people to listen to our show and follow our recommendations, <laughs> and they will. Uh, okay. That is how you educate. I don't know. That's I, I. don't know about that. I would right. never go that far. <laughs> so yeah, well, that. Uh, thank you for the comment. Thanks to our listeners for weighing in. We have a phone number, so give us a call at six one two eight 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 R A C E. Of course, if you feel like writing, you can still email us or send a voice memo at showaboutrace at gmail dot com. Hang in there. The main episode is dropping soon, and it's full of fireworks. 